0: Um, So why don't we go ahead and get into it. As you know, we're doing a a hermeneutics class. Now I wish we had had, I think next week, I can't remember when, but coming up soon is our covenant How to Read the Bible Covenantally, or How to Understand the Covenants. And tonight's, uh, today's sermon, as I think Kevin alluded, would be a perfect example of how do you take an Old Testament narrative and translate it into a New Covenant context. This whole idea of typology and and the covenant context there, very geopolitical, and you can imagine how people could abuse that passage today. I mean, there's a passage that would seem to to just right there, carte blanche, you know, sort of endorse sort of a radical, extremist, jihadist Christian worldview. And um, it doesn't, it doesn't at all. But it's, uh, but it has to be read in the whole scheme of things. So, uh, but that's not what we're going to talk about today. We're going to we're going to do that maybe next week, I think, maybe a week or two. But um, we're going to continue part one. Uh, we're well now part two of our introduction and addressing the issue of the crisis in interpretation and, and our responses to that. Um, you'll you'll notice that um, we have already we we last week just a little bit of review. Why a seminar on the Bible interpretation for every Christian? Do you might remember just the categories? Put you a little bit just to kind of get your brain going. What were some of the why, why why a seminar? What what are we trying to accomplish here? Anybody remember anything from that? Look at everybody smiling nervously. I love that smile. Alright, well I guess it didn't come through. I'll have to teach it all over again. Let's go back to part one. Y'all ready? Uh-huh. Got you on that. Um, all right, part one. Remember, we, we we noticed how many warnings there are in scripture that in the last days one of the defining characteristics of the last days um, vis-a-vis the, the, the challenge of the last days would be the misappropriation of scripture. It's amazing how clear and definitive it is. How many would want to be teachers but aren't. How many from within the church will mislead the church. And on and on it goes about the the, the warning. So you, had, you can go back to the... By the way, everybody knows how to find these... Uh, these uh, handouts, right? Okay. They're all on, on, go to our website, CPC New Haven, and go to the classes, current, and it's right there. Push interpretation, and every single handout that I we bring will be there. And um, you can pull it up right now and not have to bring in your hard copies if you don't like reading them up here or trusting me to get you through it in a way that's nice. Um, so that's a way to do it. So the first thing was just... just why do we do it? Because Jesus Christ said a lot of things. I think I've quoted 15, 16 passages where there are different kinds of challenges that we face that are directly related to the misappropriation of Scripture, uh, to, to the, the spirit of the age that doesn't uh, have a propensity to get it right. And so therefore we have to work doubly hard. Another one. Do you remember another one? Do you remember the Berean church? The observation we had there? You did? Anybody? Wow. I'm getting deflated. I must not teach very well. But the uh, the bottom line there was that we quoted Heidelberg and some others that you, the the reader, um, you have a responsibility uh, to allow only Christ to be your Lord. Um, Only Christ should be the Lord of your conscience. Therefore, you must be convinced before you can give faith to it that it is from the Lord whatever teaching, whatever exhortation, whatever things are said to you. And so um, the Bereans examined the scriptures. Remember that? They examined the scriptures to, to discern whether what Paul was saying was true. Um, and we have a, a, a great confession in our confession of faith that says the same thing. that It's the duty of every Christian to examine the scriptures uh, for every sermon. And that's, of course, going to shape the way a pastor will preach. If you hold them accountable to that, by the way, In this church, you hold them, those preachers, you know, they got their pet projects, they got their agendas, they got their glasses, their cultural glasses, their gender glasses, whatever you want to talk about. You know, we preachers have all of that. And therefore, it's very important that you hold your preachers and teachers accountable. Where does it see this in the Lord, in the the scriptures? Where is it in the scripture? And um, if you do, you're probably adding about 15 minutes to a sermon, but it's worth it. Because your pastor needs to show you in the text where these things are found. And you can say, okay, this really is what Scripture is teaching. Um, and then um, the third, of course, was that we might see Jesus. I mean, at the end of the day, the Word of God is Jesus. And um, we talked about how important that is. And tried to encourage you a little bit that we do believe it's, you know, I mean, it's, it defies all logic. We kind of left it this way, but it defies all rationality. That our God, who by His very nature is a revealing God, would therefore give us revelation that we can't interpret. So we believe it's interpretable, you know. Um, so that raises the question: Then why are there so many problems with the interpretation? Why are there so many questions? And last week we we, we divided it into four. There's sociological uh, uh, aspects to the crisis in biblical interpretation. There's going. There's um, philosophical. Aspects to the, you know, this crisis in, in interpretation, I covered those very briefly, especially the second one last week. And then we also have theological confusions uh, about the Holy Spirit, about what is inspiration, about the role of the church that can bring in those confusions. And then, of course, finally, the yeah, the, the theological in terms of inspiration, role of the Spirit, role of the church, priesthood of believers. So that's what we're going to talk about briefly today, and then we're going to move right into our method And start doing it. All right? So, with that introduction, could I ask someone to pray for us? Evan, would you mind? Father God, we just thank you that we have this time to study your word. We thank you that we're gathered at a
1: place where you are taken seriously. We believe that you gave us your word for a reason, that you really speak to us, God, as easy as that seems. We just thank you for this time that we can
0: tackle this series. In Christ's name, we pray. The Holy Spirit. So what are we praying for? If we, if you know, one of the, the first steps that we're going to teach you, by the way, when we do start talking about interpretation, is to pray. To pray. I mean, it is something to pray about and to pray for. But then what do you think we're really praying for? Well, that's been a, a subject of great, contra, uh, uh, great confusion, especially in, in recent years. Um, if you were to put together what we talked about last week and sort of the sociology of interpretation, the fact that we live in a very democratized, populist. Remember those, sort of, those three social sort of things that related to our interpretation? If you, if you just think about our context, deeply individualistic, deeply populist, deeply democratized, then when we pray for the Holy Spirit, what would a socialization... I, I, I don't know if I'm, if I'm understood here, but there's a whole field of study called uh, sociology of knowledge. And that study basically makes the point that there is an ongoing kind of tension, dialectical relationship, they say, a tension between what's called the ideal, that is the content of what we believe, and the material, that is the social realities that that we swim in, kind of like the, it's like the soup that you swim in. There's this tension that's always happening between our sociology and our ideology, all right? Does that make sense? So if, if that's true, let's just for a moment accept the premise is true. What would the Holy Spirit-filled life look like if you come out of a context that is swimming in democratization, populism, individualism, etc.? What would that look like? Holy Spirit, oh Lord, send me the Holy Spirit. How would I know that, that, that the Holy Spirit came? What would I be looking for? Okay, there would be very experiential. Good. Based upon that sort of subjective individualism that we talked about. That's called subjective individualism. Right. What else? Well, if the Holy Spirit, if it was a good interpretation, then, then that's where you'd see most people, right? That's what democratization says. That we know the truth by the common sense of the masses. Therefore, most people, it's where most people agree. Now, we looked at that last week. That, that's just really not what we see in Bible <laughs> Often it's called the remnant. Few come. Da, 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 da. So we can't base the Holy Spirit that there's a lot of enthusiasm, there's a lot of emotion, there's a lot of passion. Passion can be, passion's good. I'm all for passion. When it's a natural response to truth. But passion can be misleading. What else? Individualism, democratization, populism. It's, it's got to be the Holy Spirit if it's easy, Right? populism I mean where it's been reduced to at least a soundbite now I know y'all think I've got a little bully pulpit going here I know what you're thinking I'm a cynic too but honestly whether I you know don't don't let this be about me but the point is is yeah I mean it would it would be true if I could put it into PowerPoint anti-intellectualism you know that would be some of the assumptions because popular how does it how do you get this stuff at such a simple letter level that it could be a populously sort of moved thing you see how how subtle the sociology of knowledge issue is and so if you think about the holy spirit notice let's go back and and read the bible you know our belief read the bible with the church for two thousand years and here's a statement um that i think will be very clarifying for us if you haven't familiar with it can someone read that for us westminster confession this is what our church believes uh and you'll see the issue here
1: The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life, is either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequence. They be deduced from scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary to the saving understanding such things as we are, as such things as are revealed in the word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian freedom according to the general rule of the word, which are always to be
0: of good. So what do you notice there about the, how is the spirit used in that statement? Two uses. There's two things that you could see that the Spirit does. What are they? One is by neg- by a negative statement. You'll notice, but but what are they? Two two uh, uses, if you will, of the Spirit. What the Spirit does. Two things that the Spirit does. What are they? Okay. Doesn't conspire new. That's the key word. They're new revelations, but that assumes that the spirit does inspire old revelations as in the scripture so clearly the holy spirit and we looked at that last week so I won't do it again but but peter tells you the holy spirit has spoken in scripture that's where the holy spirit speaks you want to you want to be you want to have a word from the lord you go to the scripture that's where the holy spirit speaks that's verse peter it's in our last week chapter thing so it certainly does that it does speak or it does communicate through revelation and yet here we're acknowledging there's an of or a false understanding of the Spirit, which would be to expect it now. Right? Now, that's a big issue. But don't, don't misunderstand what comes next. What's another use of the Holy Spirit? Or what does the Spirit do now? Illumination. So there's a distinction being made here between revelation and illumination. Now, those are very, very important distinctions. What does the Spirit do? Again, a... Um, it acknowledges the inward illumination of the spirit to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the word of God Um, we acknowledge you can read the scripture and do your exegesis perfectly and not be saved by it not be transformed by it not even want to hear it you know I worked in a hospital for four years and I noticed how I'd get tired get a little ornery and one of my patients would ask me to come in and They could hardly speak, and I would kind of be, you know, tired. I didn't want to be in that room. I didn't want to hear that patient, but I'm trying to do my job. But I mean, it literally, I remember I noticed this, it literally prevented me from hearing it because I was afraid to hear it. I was afraid to hear that that patient was asking me to work my tail off. (laughs) And then the, but if there were a family member there, oh, he wants some water. Can't you hear him? He's saying he wants water. Now, what is that? That we have a disposition. We have a heart problem in hearing the word of God. We're resisting it naturally. We're resisting it. Lordship. It's only by the miracle. So Christ, there's a lot of passages. I list them here. And you can just kind of skim them as I'm as I'm talking here. But there are quite a few passages that acknowledge that apart from the Holy Spirit, the word will, will not produce any effect upon us. It's got to be by the Holy Spirit. And in fact, we will conjure up false meanings from the scripture. We can we can certainly impose our agenda on the scripture. We stop listening and we start speaking while we're reading. That's very possible. You know, have you ever um you, you, you know what it's like when you're in an argument with somebody? And how you listen to everything they say with a view towards what? When you're in that sort of argument? You're listening for your counter-argument. Oh, you're going to hear it in a way that's most suitable to your counter-argument. And you'll twist it, and you'll turn it, and you'll you'll emphasize one thing out of its greater context. And you can just totally misconstrue what someone said. If you don't have a sympathy to the person you're listening to, you will not understand them. This is something that Christians often just forget to think about. It's not this... I'm not this sort of, uh, you know, in the academia post enlightenment. There's this unencumbered sort of self that's supposed to be the academic, the guy that or the girl that can listen and read the text or read the, the the science and be unencumbered by any personal bias. We know that in a moral constructed universe, that's not possible. That we are we are moral people, and that we have a constitution, a moral constitution. That will hear things the way we want to hear them, just like you experienced in in an argument. At that moment, I'm not morally biased for the person I'm arguing with. I am biased to myself, and I want to hear it for myself. Now we have to pray. You know, me and my wife are having a conversation. I'm going to say, "God, Lord, help me." You know, help me to really hear her. Not let me slow down here. Let me listen. That's that's what we're praying for. We're praying for illumination, the work of the Spirit. That acts upon the hearer in such a manner that our, our moral self is soft and pliable to the word of God. And if not, we will misconstrue it. We will make it say and hear it say things that are not being said. Because the bias will be against it, not for it. That's what we're talking about in illumination here. Um, and so notice here, you see it all through the scripture. I'm just going to summarize it. The subjective role of of producing reconciliation, Romans eight fifteen, where the Spirit destroys enmity between rebellious creatures and God. The Spirit's role in enabling us to receive the truths of God, Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 2. These things have to be spiritually appraised, Paul would say. And so there is always a subjective role. Now, I'm, I'm using the word subjective, very important. There is a subjective role. That is, a work of God directly upon us, the subject. So, it is a subjective thing that we're looking for when we pray for the Holy Spirit. But, as not to compromise the objectivity of the Word of God. And that's what revelation's about. Revelation, on the other hand, and you can read these quotes for yourself, it does not, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, neither by the new revelations of the Spirit. And we'll talk about the church in a minute. And so, when you think about the Holy Spirit, I'm not saying God reveal to me anything that's right there got to study it some things are easier some things are harder says uh peter about paul you know not all things are alike easy you're gonna have to study it and you're gonna and we're gonna and that's the whole purpose of this course to help you know how to do that but that's, the, that's what we're saying. There is an objectivity. Now, let me ask you, if you were to not have the Scripture in, a, in the objective sense of meaning, so one way that you can make a distinction here is to think of the subjectivity of, of us reading Scripture is understanding the significance of Scripture in my life. But the work of the Holy Spirit in Revelation is contained to the Scripture itself, the words themselves. And that's the objective truth or the meaning of Scripture. So I'm not really praying for meaning. I'm praying that I will be a vessel prepared to hear the meaning. As I'm thanking God that the meaning has been implanted into that Scripture. It's there. It's sitting right there in the Scripture, right in front of you. There it is. You want to know what it means? It's right there. He gave it to you so that you can study it and get it. You know, so it's like we're... I'm tempted to go off into many parallels. We'll get to them later. But um, the the question is that some theologians have argued over the years is where is the word of God? Is it in me when I read it? Is it in Paul when he writes it? Or is it in the text itself? And when we get to uh, uh, inspiration of scripture, it is orthodoxy from way back when. It's orthodoxy to always say we believe in the plenary verbal inspiration of scripture. Which means it's the, the inspiration part is text. And all of a sudden that's going to open up a big I mean y- there should be an aha moment going right now if you if you're thinking about this like okay. So that means word studies and historical context and redemptive context and syntax and and you know Uh, looking at sentence structures and, you know, verbs and nouns and adjectives, and all of that becomes really sacred stuff to us. And classically, evangelicals have treated the word that way, very sacredly. You just don't go and, you know, handle loosely the word of God, because those, if there's an adjective there, it's important. If there's a chi and, it's important. And we're going to have to ask, how is that word used in its context? What was the semantic range of the use of "kai"? Can it be and? Can it be also? Can it be, you know, just like we have a semantic range for how we use words. You're sick. That can mean you're great. That can mean you're really puking, right? We all cultures have semantic ranges, and they did too. You'll get to this later, but one of the cardinal sins of, of a word study is a root word study. I mean, really? What culture uses words based on a root word concept? You know? If I said to you, the Latin ni- you know, from the, derived from the Latin word nice, if I say my wife is nice... That that from a root word, if you were to trace it through, would get to me. You would be reading me two hundred years from now, saying, "What does these husbands think of wives? How do they treat their wives?" Oh, he calls her nice. I'll do a root word study. Anybody know what that means? If you do a root word study, what? <laughs> Basically, that she's that she's uh, weak. That she's that she's. Uh, it's not a it's not a flattering term. So, so that's, what, that's what we're getting at. The Holy Spirit gave us revelation. That's where the meaning is. That's where the word is. And then we pray for the spiritual illumination in order to read it. Um, the question that everybody asks now is, well, wh- what about these passages like 1 John 14, 25? I have said these things to you while I am still with you, but the advocate the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. And I've got a couple more like that. What are we going to do with that? Looks like it's just a direct violation of what I just said, doesn't it? Now, if you read it in context, it becomes very clear. He is actually taught, I think I said this last week, did I? I've been teaching this somewhere else, too. I'm actually teaching a course for the guys in Zambia online, and we just did this. So I, that was there, not here? Okay, I guess it was. Um, and so uh, so think about the context of this. Who's he talking to here? Is he talking to the masses? Nope. He's talking to the 12 disciples. Oh, and who are the 12 disciples? They're the apostles, those whom upon this rock I will build my church, those whom to the you know the church built upon the apostolic foundation with Christ as the cornerstone. And they will literally, 1 Peter, you know, uh, reference this very teaching when he says, look, this this scripture, um, this words I'm giving you, Peter says, is not a matter of one's own interpretation, but by God, by the Holy Spirit. This is what we were waiting for, is for the Holy Spirit to come, the advocate, who would advocate for Christ by giving us the, the, the scripture that would become the very foundation, theological foundation of the church and so you got to look at it and see what's really being promised, etc, etc any questions about the Holy Spirit? I thought so aren't I a good teacher I got it all solved right there no seriously any questions about the Holy Spirit in relation to the interpretation and what we're talking about very, very important what's at stake here is the lordship of christ by the way if if the holy spirit is is putting meaning into me it's not there objectively it becomes if we make meaning subjective then it's going to be a matter of one's own interpretation every scripture and we've just lost the objective once and for all concrete thus saith the lord we have no thus saith the lord it's thus saith preston inspired by the scripture baby but it's not thus saith the lord so that's what's at stake here nothing less than the lordship of christ it's called neo-orthodoxy and liberalism on two sides of the strain and it's one of the things historically that classic evangelicals have been fighting against but i venture to say with james hunter and some other very good scholars who studied evangelicalism that a, a large share of american evangelicals are neo-orthodox a large percentage are neo-orthodox and it just feels comfortable to you i'm sure i'm stepping on toes right now because I've just taken the Holy Spirit and made it much less exciting to you. But actually, I think it's more exciting. The born again experience is a pretty big deal to me and you. And that's what it takes to read scriptures, to be born again. Something happens to me that way. But the objectivity of scripture can't be lost. Anything? So, the other thing you noticed is the role of the church. And again, we got some confusion. You'll notice in, in our what we just read. It does not add to Revelation Scripture, um, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, nor traditions of men. So, of course, the Protestant Revolution was, was not about inspiration. There was nothing really questioned about the doctrine of inspiration. It was about tradition and the role of the church in interpreting the Scripture, or in relationship to the Scripture, I should say. And what we're saying here, and notice the language, nothing, it'll go on to say, if I get into it, it's not just, you know, the, to the, the objectivity of the Scripture is protected, not just by virtue of, um, let me get up here where it was first done. Uh, nothing can be what? Added to it? Unto which nothing at any time is to be added? I thought it was also not contrary to, where is that stated here? It's so number six. Well, anyway, it's, it's not just contrary to Scripture, but, but beside Scripture. Our Scriptures are only a rule of faith and practice. Nothing contrary to or beside. Now, let's just be honest. I don't think there's any tradition, church tradition, that will teach, that I'm aware of, at least not a classical tradition, that would teach that the church has the authority to teach something as a new revelation from God that's contrary to the Scripture. That's, that's not what anyone thinks okay the debate of the Reformation was are, is there continuing revelation through the church they said against the Anabaptist tradition there's no continuing revelation with respect to private interpretation or private reading you know, private experience against the Roman church the reformer said there's no continuing revelation that's, e- that's even beside not contrary, but beside the teachings of Scripture in tradition or through the church. And that's a very important distinction. So on the one hand, nevertheless, what it can do, according to our passage, is we acknowledge, uh, let's get back down there. Well, I, I, you could go and read these. This shows you the canons and decrees of the Council of Trent as, as one historical document that explains what the reformers were against and then you have those here um, which responds to what we don't agree i'm not going to read them now for the sake of time but what does it do what can the church do so if the church can't again add to scripture revelation objective meaning truth What it can do, to the degree that more qualified biblical study and simply more of it over a greater period of time has the advantage of being a better instructor than the single untrained individual at any one particular time, then the church has the advantage of being translating the Bible, especially regarding those things not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all, which is something our confession will talk about. The church then becomes a function of illumination, again, versus revelation. And again, this is an interesting thing. I don't know if anywhere in the Scripture where we're given any expectation that there's going to be an individual person who's going to be the guardian of the truth. We don't see that. We see the church, though, in that role, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. And, of course, the creeds, uh, this is going to get us to reading the Scripture with our church community over 2,000 years. And you're going to, well, how can I do that? They're all dead. Well, they left to us an amazing interpretive document called creeds. This is, we studied the scripture in the 5th century. This is our conclusions from studying the scripture. And we'll pass those conclusions down to you. That Those conclusions are not themselves scripture. They don't have the authority of scripture. Quite the contrary, they will say, like our confession, the first thing we want to teach you is there is no authority except scripture. And you should test everything we're about to tell you in our confession over against scripture. But at least it gets us it puts on some, some traditional clothes in a manner that we can read scripture, read it with our brothers and sisters over a period of 2,000 years, and have some confidence that if we're concluding from scripture X, and it matches the conclusion of a church for 2,000 years in this long history of tradition, that we're in pretty good, you know, uh, place here. And it helps us to look for things in scripture as we r- work with our tradition. So this is a little bit of a a critique of what's called the inductive Bible study method. If you mean by that, again, I think induction is a process for studying the Bible, but if you mean by that, that, you know, in some ways the more, the, the less communal it gets and the more it becomes isolated from individual to small group to small church, you see, it goes like that, the more subject we are, I think, to the sort of acids of culture that can demise our, our interpretation. So if you hear what I'm saying, um, I mean, it's interesting that one of the, I mean, everybody, we're all for community, small group Bible studies here. You know that, right? And we want you to do it. But we have a, we want to have a fairly realistic expectation about what can happen and can't happen based on what we're talking about here. My guess is it's not the right, it's not the best place to interpret Scripture. It's probably a much better place To read scripture and not to go too deep with it, but to read it in its plain sense with the conclusions of the church over 2,000 years about it. Um, To have people who are untrained, honestly, you know, who are sitting there in probably a culturally uh, contained environment. I mean, you know, whether it's the same generation, whether it's the same gender, whether it's the same demographic, social, culturally, whatever it is and to think that we can read it nearly as well as we could read it if we were to read it communally with the church over 2,000 years of many different genders and demographics and cultures, et cetera, that our own social biases will get, um, un—you uh, know that they will become uh, matched with the more general teaching of the, of the church about what the scriptures principally teach. You see what I'm saying there? So small groups are great for illumination. They're pretty bad, honestly, for interpreting Revelation. That's a general sort of conclusion, I think, if you understand the concept here. The more widely we can read Scripture, that is widely in terms of relating it to the traditions of the church, the more probable we'll ha- probability we'll have at, at understanding the Scripture and its, and its meaning. Um the more isolated and individual we read the scripture, while it might have a very distinct significance for you, which is a proper, perhaps, um, we're we're more inclined, I think, to miss the meaning. And so that's that's kind of a payoff in a way that I know most of us aren't living in the Reformation era, but that would be a kind of example of what kind of concept here we're talking about. Rick Lentz is talking about that in his book, The Fabric of Theology, and there's a good quote there. So here's the, the picture that we've got, right? Yeah. Might be kind of but
1: I'm not sure. Can you like define pretty simply the difference in
0: illumination and interpretation? Okay, I I uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so illumination would be I I use words like significance. It's how the scripture and its objective meaning is received by me. It's, it's the work of the Spirit subjectively upon me that enables me to see the meaning. So it's, 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 it's working on my lenses, my moral lenses, and apply the meaning. Whereas the revelation is the objective, the scripture that, is in, that has been breathed out by God in verbal fashion in a text. No. no. She's, asked, no, she's, she's
1: asking the question. difference between
0: interpretation and illumination, not revelation Well, interpretation has those two parts. I mean there's a sense in which I'm interpreting scripture, but it's but it and, and if well, I don't know. I, those are terms I haven't typically used as as arbitrarily set against each other. Yeah. Yeah, I did say that, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think what I'm talking about interpreting meaning, if I could put the if I could end it with an object. So it it's not as good for interpreting meaning it could be better even for interpreting significance if i or or understanding significance that's what i was trying to say yeah um, are you applying your thesis to our modern culture we have this
1: 2000 year history
0: of <laughs> interpretation right
1: Mm-hmm. Which is desert. Mm-hmm. Ghost, he, t- he takes him out there. He runs up to this chariot where the eunuch is reading the prophet Isaiah. Mm-hmm.
0: And mm-hmm. the question that he asks him yeah. is Do you understand what you are reading? All right. Okay. Yep. The re- eunuch replies How
1: can I unless someone shows me? All right. The bottom line is salvation occurs to the eunuch. He's baptized, he goes on, yep. and it says, and then, not the angel, but the spirit takes Philip and moves him and he's found in another city. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> that's one individual talking to another individual. Yeah. It's not contemporary, but it is uh, after the ascension of Christ and
0: it's still during the i Okay, I'm, I'm not sure I'm understanding the question. Well, yeah. Well, no. Let, let you go ahead and tell me what the, the this question is. It like that, yeah. Uh, would you say that could be replicated today? Where I would well, okay. Let me let, so let me try to answer that so we don't keep going. Yeah. Yeah. I have no doubts that God can use you and me individually to help other people understand Scripture. That's partly why we're doing this course. Um, I have no. I, I want to be careful because to the degree that there is a foundation. Level. I mean, when we're in Acts, remember we're still in, rede- in the redemptive history of salvation. There, we are still partaking. Acts is, is the store. It's the uh, what's well, Acts of the Apostles. It's it is explaining the source of the foundation of the church. It's a foundational document. So, th- Acts, remember, is not the same. It's not speaking to the same history as as say somebody writing church history uh, uh, fifty years later, even. You know, you're not just telling the church history here. It's actually how God revealed His Word to us is what's happening in Acts. And so I want to be careful. On the one hand, see, that's why I was getting kind of confused what I'm hearing. On the one hand, yes, I believe that all of us can be used of God to help people understand Scripture and its meaning and vis-a-vis and help people apply it in their lives. That's a good thing to do. insofar as we think of the church acting both jointly when we're collected like this and severally you are acting on but my point would be you would be a better instrument of God to the degree that when you're talking to Billy Bob out there on the road about what the scripture teaches that you would be informed and you would be doing so on behalf of the church acting jointly when you're acting severally does that make sense so, so I'm not. So, to me, the best thing that could happen, to think this really simple, is the more this church is uh, gathers together in the assembly and does interpretation of scripture the way we do it every Sunday in the service, and out of those interpretations you draw from them conclusions that are hopefully conclusions that are consistent with the conclusions of the church over two thousand years, because our pastors are trained and they are expected to test their interpretations against the tradition. That's what we're called to do. To the degree that you are informed like that, and then you walk into a small group Bible study and you're leading a discussion about John 4, and your knowledge of the Scripture based upon an exposition and 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 within the context of reading it with your tradition, you're going to be a much more profitable leader of that group, right? Right? What I was trying to say earlier about the small group is just be mindful that one of the tendencies of small group is, I mean, the whole purpose of small group is to try to give people more opportunity to talk, more opportunity to participate. I mean, when you're sitting out there in that service today, there's not going to be much of a collaborative effort going on as we were looking at Esther 9, right? But in a small group, part of what makes it so... Live is that everybody gets to talk about it. And if I'm leading it, you're going to get some things in a minute that are going to show you how to lead a small group in a way that's consistent with what we're talking about. Learning how to ask questions that are not questions regarding meaning as much as they are questions regarding uh, observations in the text that then can help them get to the meaning. And there's a difference. So you see what I'm saying? So if you take a small group at that table right there, and if, and, if, and if the whole purpose is to get everybody to participate, that is a license to some serious errors in, in, in Bible interpretation. Because you're leaving it to everyone's individual opinion, untrained potentially, un, unaware of the tradition of the church, etc., etc., etc. And so that's why I think small groups, Lyric Lymphs was trying to make the case that these inductive Bible study movements have had a very toxic effect on orthodoxy. Studied, and I'm saying that if you study it from the vantage point of, of, of an academic study, that it's it's democratized interpretation in a manner that's that that's allowed errors to be more quickly you know disseminated. I mean, it's just a, it's an amazingly curious thing. Why is it that pretty consistently, if you study if you if you read any of the the social historians of American religion, they almost universally conclude that American evangelicalism is largely repeating the errors of liberalism in their Bible interpretation. Now, why does that happen? Well, it's because of what we said earlier. You, you import these sort of social factors and, and all of a sudden this small group is becoming a church unto itself and in interpreting scripture and people are walking away thinking they've learned what orthodoxy is. And all I'm trying to say is there's a really great use for small groups, which is, I think, focusing on the significance of, and the more the small group is reliant upon the, the tools of, 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 uh, of interpretation that is going to be taught through this class, hopefully, that come from Scripture itself, and reading it within a much larger communal context of their whole church, local church, reading it with their local church, but also reading it with their Catholic church of, of many years to, to the degree that that's going to be a more healthy small group. That's all I'm saying. That's a great question, though. I appreciate you asking it. In terms of Philip, though, and in the, in the leading of the Holy Spirit, that is a very complicated passage. I, again, I would want to distinguish between to what degree is Philip acting as an apostolic you know, representative in some sense, even if in, indirectly. But the other way you could look at that is the Holy Spirit led us. I mean, to what degree is he, as we'll talk about later, making decisions that assumes the presence of God's Spirit... in in, in applying word to action in other words i could say the holy spirit led me to uh, teach this class today now i could mean a lot of things by that couldn't i you see this is why we need to get much more clear i could mean i got a word from god in a dream last night that i'm supposed to be here and teach this and that would be making a dream into revelation and i would categorically dismiss that there is no new revelation now, I could say, I had a dream last night that I was, I'm supposed to lead this thing, and I looked at the Word of God, and it's true that when my church commands me to teach Sunday school, I'm supposed to do it. Therefore, by good and necessary for some Scripture, I should lead Scripture here. And now the Word of God informed me regarding leading this Bible study. You see how the difference is? And I could say I'm filled with the Spirit. I could say I was led by the Spirit. Because why? The Spirit speaks in Scripture. So when you read the Bible and you hear Philip being led by the Spirit, who's to say that what that means is, knowing and, and, and understanding the Scriptures, which informs him to go out into all the world and make disciples, and to go into places that are unreached, in his study of Scripture and prayerfully for the significance in his life and the opportunities that have opened up for him, he has therefore concluded that he is led to go to blank and talk to blank. You see what I'm saying? So that's some, some stuff here. We're out of town again. And um, I was going to talk about this real briefly, this little thing. But, but let me show you something that y'all kind of led me to get into today, which is great. But I want you to go back and read this handout. And particularly, I want you to notice all of this. But um, if you go on down, you can skim it. But it's plenty of information for you, obviously. But we're, here's where I want you to kind of zip into this passage, right here, a basic method summarized. That's on page, what page is that? Uh, 14. A basic method summarized is where all of this will go, and we'll pick back up on this. But particularly, we've, we've hit on some themes today that, um, that I think is sort of relevant to what I also did. I put in there, and this was just an addendum, but here is what I believe is a very good summary of the use of Scripture in ministry. Now, there are, three, there are three things that I'm going to do here. This is really important. If you want to know where this is all going to go, and it gets into a lot of the questions you guys are asking today, go to this, the use of Scripture in ministry. And one use is going to be, okay, how do you use Scripture in preparing a sermon? Now, none of you, most of you are not going to be doing that. But this is the kind of thing I would say, and I do teach to seminary students in abbreviated form. Then, look what's after this. The use of Scripture in leading a small group Bible study by directed discussion. There are some do's and there are some don'ts that are informed by our belief system about Scripture that you want to think about here. If you're asking the question, what does the Scripture mean, I'm never going to ask that kind of question to my small group. What do you think it means? I mean, that's just waiting for them to make a mistake and we have to embarrass them. What I will do is say, Let's look at some, do you see any words here being repeated? Do you see anything here that just kind of sticks out at you? In other words, I might help them see some observations that then can be put together in a way that could say, gosh, put together, like I did today in the sermon, three times they didn't take the plunder. Okay, we got to go look that up somewhere. We got to go to the whole Old Testament to find out what's the big deal with plunder. (laughs) And that gets you to Holy War. Now, I could just see that in a small group Bible study. I could just see it now. Don't take the plunder. And off we go in some moralistic crusade about, you know, what we're supposed to do to the brothers that are poor or rich or I don't know. I mean, I can just see all kinds of crap coming from that. When if you'd read it rightly, it's clearly meant to point me back to the Mosaic Law and understand what's the nature of this war and why it's going on. So that's how to lead a small group Bible study. And finally, the use of ministry in um, in, uh, discerning God's will. And that's what you get here. And I talk about how we believe, if, we, if you hold to the objectivity of Scripture, in terms of its meaning, then we're not going to ever advocate for any method of discerning God's will that would require continuing revelation, right? Duh, that's what we're going to say. And so whatever you're saying, we're not looking for continuing revelation. We are going to therefore ask, how would you interpret it if you believe that the Word of God is sufficient in order to help me be wise in the way that I walk before the Lord every day. And what would you do and how would you think about it? And so we put all this-